the past that's been inhabited by evangelicals can best be understood, it seems to me, in terms of successive waves of enlightenment, romanticism, and expressivism. When you put them together and see how they mingle and interweave and are still influential in the present, you have a key to understanding how evangelicalism has changed over time. It's watering time, everybody! It's time for Apollo's Watered! A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. Do you know who your spiritual ancestors are? And do you know how they have shaped you today? You know, my physical ancestors were farmers, and I spent my youth on our small family farm. I learned about who we were and how we came to be there. I learned about hard work and what it meant to work with your hands. I learned what sacrifice meant, and I also learned what laziness was. For better or for worse, that shaped me. Your family of origin has shaped you, for better or for worse. You are the product of the choices of the generations that have gone before you. Whether you agreed to be a victim of it or whether you decided to fight back, it still influenced you. And the same is true when it comes to matters of faith. Our spiritual ancestors have shaped us. Today, we're going to talk to one of the greatest historians in the world, Dr. David Bebbington. It's a two-part conversation where he will take you on a journey into the not-so-distant Christian past of the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. He is your guide into the lives of two of the primary figures of the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Dwight Lyman Moody. They were two of the most influential of your evangelical ancestors, whose lives, ministries, and legacies you are a beneficiary of today. Dr. Bubbington helps you to see how they were shaped in their own time and how your faith was shaped by them. He will help you to draw inspiration from them, but also to take stock of your own time to see how your culture has shaped you in ways you may not even realize and how you are to push back against the culture. Our time is an era of change, intense change on a basic cultural level. You've heard many guests on our show who have talked about this. People like Carl Truman, Mike Goheen, and Trevin Wax. When culture shifts in huge and seemingly unprecedented ways, you feel out of sorts. Cast adrift without sight of a land and no idea what to do. It's understandable. Normal, really. What you really need, though, is a guide. A lighthouse to show you how you got where you are and how to get back. That's why you need to hear from historians. They can show you how. Even though your time may be disorienting, this isn't the first time things have shifted. And shifted dramatically. Sometimes looking to the past can help you better know yourself and how to chart a path forward. We are evangelicals. We know that that's a loaded word today. For some, it's a good name. For others, it's increasingly irrelevant, co-opted, and perhaps even evil. For better, and sometimes worse, it is who we are, though. But when we use the term in Apollos Watered, 
We don't mean it as a voting block or some sort of demographic. We mean it theologically and historically, even though that use is often eclipsed by the other uses. So for you who are seeking to renew the church in the West, knowing your history is important to this effort of renewal. And for those who may not share the same history of Western evangelicalism, well, Understanding the church in the West is important for you, too, because for better and unfortunately sometimes worse, Western evangelicalism has had and still has an outsized influence on you, too. A couple of other things before we get into the conversation. This is a very deep conversation, and Dr. Bebbington is an outstanding scholar. But I do know that many of the things that he's referring to may not be as familiar with you. So I have decided to interject in a few different places to provide clarification so that you might know exactly what he's talking about. That's the first thing. And secondly, we need your financial support. We can't continue to provide you with the best watering voices that are out there without your help. Go to apolloswater.org, click the support us button. And by doing that, you become a watering warrior. You are standing in the dry places, pouring out the water of life, bringing water where life is languishing. You are a hero. And with that in mind, let's get to David Bevington. Happy listening. David Bevington, welcome to Apollos Water. Not at all. It's nice to be here. Are you ready for the Fast Five? Uh, Yes, I've been forewarned, so I'm as ready as I can be. I announced this to our Facebook community that you were coming on and if they had any questions for you. And one of our listeners, Andrew, says, in lieu of your famous name and the quadrilateral that draws its name from you, his question was a bit tongue-in-cheek. What is your favorite quadrilateral? A rhombus, an isosceles, a trapezium, a parallelogram, a square, or etc. I love variety in quadrilaterals, and indeed, a book that I had published a couple of years ago has assorted quadrilaterals on the cover in different colors. That is the ideal. I believe that quadrilateral is universalizable. <laughs> okay, that's... <laughs> I was not expecting that answer. I can honestly say that I wasn't expecting that. Now, you travel a lot. You've been to the U.S. quite a bit. What is the one food you like to eat that is not as good in the U.K.? Beef. I go to Texas, and so Texas provides superb quality beef, which is always tender and always sweet. When I come back to the U.K., I refuse to eat beef for six months because it will not be anything like real beef. <laughs> I like that one. All right. But being a part of the UK, being, I mean, being a citizen, what do you consider having traveled is the best part of being a citizen of the UK? That's the third question. Well, I really like having something that you don't have in the United States, and that is a standard policy for rear windshield wipers. In the UK, every car has a rear windshield wiper, so you can see even when it's raining through the back window. In America, yes, some cars do, but some don't. And I was once caught in an 
appalling rainstorm in North Carolina in December when it was dark. I could not see at all. I was totally unfamiliar with the road. I nearly had three crashes, and that was the result of the absence of this necessary feature of modern life. Why America hasn't had it, I have the foggiest idea, (laughs) but it hasn't, and it should. (laughs) Okay, being a historian... If there is one historical figure that you could have tea with, not from biblical times, who would it be and why? It would be William Ewart Gladstone, about whom I've written quite a lot, because on one occasion he was at a party and people said, now let us all contribute who and when we would most like to have been with in the whole of history, the very question you just asked me. And he said he'd love to have been in the company of Homer. And then he suddenly realized that he really ought to have suggested somebody from biblical times. And he retracted shamefacedly. That's true of Gladstone. And Gladstone was uh, a noble person who who was capable of retracting an error in answer to your question. (laughs) I have to say, this is one of the most entertaining fast fives, insightful fast fives I've ever done. but. And, and this question actually is loaded because of what we just spoke about in our pre-show walkthrough. If your life were to be a book, what would be the title and why? Well, that is not a hypothetical question because, <laughs> as you well know, my life has been written. There is a published academic biography of me, weirdly, which I'm sure shouldn't exist, but does, and it's written by my wife. She published it with an academic publisher, Whip from Stock, in 2015, and it actually discusses my background, my origins, and how that shaped my life. And because one of my books was called Patterns in History, she called the biography A Patterned Life. So that is available, and I'm delighted to try to promote sales of my wife's book. Is, is it strange? I mean, how often in history has a spouse written a biography of their spouse? And was she fair or was she, I mean, <laughs> I have so many my, questions. My, my wife is a very judicious person and a very um, diplomatic person. And therefore, she managed to write about me, I think, without being hagiographical, without being silly, but bringing out facets of my life, which... Most of them, I'm very happy for people to know about. Intriguingly, I have never yet tracked down any instance of a wife writing the biography of her husband, as my wife has done, until he is safely dead. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's transition. Let's hear your biography. You know, a lot of people know who you are. At least they know the quadrilateral that bears your name. But when you came to faith, where you grew up, and some of your family story and how you became a historian. I was born in 1949 in Nottingham in the English North Midlands. I went with my parents to a brethren assembly. That's the so-called Primus Brethren when I was young. And found its atmosphere intriguing, not least because of the silence. But then my parents moved to a Baptist church, a very conservative Baptist church, when I was nine. And a year later at that church, I was converted from after a woman preacher's sermon, 
And of course, brethren did not then at all approve of women preaching. So that was anomalous, but it was real. I knelt down at the side of my bed and made a prayer of commitment. And although I was only 10, I think it was real. I think it stuck. And although I've questioned it in retrospect, I think there has been a continuity of a sort of Christian experience ever since. So I was a Christian. I didn't become a member of my Baptist church, as I now think I jolly well should have done. I don't like separating conversion from baptism and church commitment. But I was baptized uh, when I was 18, just before going to university. And that was a matter of serious reflection. And that was, as it were, a declaration of where I stood. And at university thereafter, I'd actually been interested in the subject even before I went to my high school. When I was nine at my primary school, we had to do a project. And so my wise primary school teacher encouraged me to do something on ancient history. So I wrote a book called A History of the Ancient World with which is incorporated classical mythology in four volumes. And it was indeed 120 pages and has footnotes. So in a sense, I was already online to be a historian from primary school, but clearly the rather superior teaching at my high school helped enormously. So I went out to Cambridge to read history and um, Cambridge history at that time was also extremely good. I was a very much appreciative beneficiary of lots of distinguished historians. Some of them, I confess, more congenial than others. And it was natural, therefore, to go on to do a history PhD, which could be done straight away without a master's degree intervening in those days. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Your publications, I mean, being in history, uh, and t- I want to talk about your book, actually, and it's, it's a little bit older now, The Dominance of Evangelicalism. And I've known you've written several books, but I was especially drawn to this one because, number one, it was a history of evangelicals that InterVarsity Press had done, but also the subtitle are two of my favorite characters in this period of time. Actually, this is one of my favorite periods of time within church history. The Age of Spurgeon and Moody. And I, of course, I went to Moody, so I read a lot about D.L. Moody. Actually, it was me reading about D.L. Moody that made me want to go to Moody. I didn't even know that Moody existed until I read his biography. 
And Spurgeon has always been a huge fan. As a matter of fact, in an in homage, I named my dog Spurgeon. <laughs> so not in a negative way. I know sometimes people have done that for negative things, but we call him Spurge for short. But why is this period of time so informative or how does it shape how we understand evangelicalism today? Okay, let me begin with those two figures. Spurgeon was undoubtedly the greatest preacher of his generation in the whole Anglo world and probably in the whole world. Indeed, that opinion was shared. For example, the Serbian Orthodox Church, Serbian Orthodox Church, commanded that all its clergy should preach sermons by Spurgeon at least once a year. Isn't that extraordinary? And Spurgeon's influence was very, very widespread. Um, when I go to the States and look at seminary and university libraries, I usually find vast arrays of Spurgeon titles still, not just his sermons, but his other writings. So his influence has lasted, and that's, that's remarkable. Um, Moody was... Uh, in some senses, a disciple of Spurgeon. He greatly respected him. He admired his preaching skills. He shared much of his theological perspective. Moody was not as emphatic a Calvinist as Spurgeon, but he was not far from it. And Moody, of course, is celebrated as a, a traveling preacher, an evangelist, a revivalist, and was so, and therefore his influence extended over a very wide area in the United States, but also in Britain. The biography of Moody, the standard biography, which is a good one, very scholarly biography, is called uh, The American Evangelist. But he wasn't just American. He was also British and extremely influential in Britain. When I did a, an article for the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, the standard reference work for biographies in Britain, um, I concluded that he probably, Moody probably, was the most important cultural import from America to Britain before Hollywood. And I still believe that. So Moody also has a very wide influence. And those two figures did an enormous lot to shape the evangelicalism that followed. However, I would also argue that history is not just created by individuals, which it is, they play their part but also by cultural forces. And I think the cultural forces that came into play in the West during the 19th century, and especially in the second half of the 19th century, helped determine how religion developed in the 20th century, and in some measure still develops in the 21st. In particular, I think the evangelical movement was impacted in a really big way by the legacy of the Enlightenment. Now, traditionally, it's been held that the Enlightenment was a secular and in some ways secularizing movement and hostile to religion in general and to biblical faith in particular. I do not share that view. It is true that there were some Enlightenment figures, especially in the 18th century, especially in France, Voltaire, for example, who was very critical of revealed religion. But in the 18th century and still in the 19th century, a large number of evangelicals shared most of the intellectual premises of the Enlightenment about the way in which 
investigation is the key to acquiring knowledge, the way in which one can look to the future for advances in human skills. And many other assumptions were shared between more secular thinkers and evangelical Christians, which is partly why the evangelical movement grew so rapidly in the early 19th century. And those assumptions were still very widespread in the later 19th century. For example, most evangelical Christians in the late 19th century were post-millennialists. They believed, yes, there would be a millennium in the future, but they believed that history was gradually moving towards the millennium, so things were getting better. That was because the gospel was spreading in the Anglo world, but beyond it through the missionary movement too. And in the wake of the spread of the gospel, things were getting better in every sphere. One of my favorite articles is from the General Baptist magazine in England from 1854, which said that in the future, by the year 2016, actually, there will be huge progress. And by that date, there will be an end, not just to war, but also to taxes. That has not happened, but that was the confident belief. There was optimism about the future. And post-millennialism is optimism about the future. That, that is closely aligned with the expectations of the Enlightenment. And that was dominant in the late 19th century and led on in some measure to the social gospel. And the social gospel was not originally something hostile to the evangelical movement either. It was largely rooted in it, not exclusively rooted in the evangelical movement to a large extent it was. So the, the Enlightenment was a cultural force that had a major impact on the evangelical movement in the later 19th century. But so paradoxically was the movement that supplanted the Enlightenment as a broad cultural movement. Okay, I want to interject for a moment. If you're like me, maybe you vaguely remember terms like the Enlightenment and Romanticism. You may have heard it in history class or high school or college, wherever that may be. It's totally okay. The big thing that I want you to see in this conversation is not the specifics of the Enlightenment or Romanticism, even though Dr. Bevington gives us a little bit about them. It's that they were the broad cultural streams that influenced pretty much everything around them. They were cultural issues that colored the way people saw and interacted with the world. Evangelicalism has always been a movement that was in tune to some degree with the broader cultural ways of seeing the world. Some of the aspects of those cultural movements are good, some are bad. In the case of the Enlightenment, as Dr. Bebbington stated, investigation is highly prized. Reason, rationality, these are good things. Problems happen though, when reason is pitted against, for instance, our emotions or revelation. So let's jump back into the conversation now about the Romantics. The Romantic movement, which literary historians tend to date from 1790 to 1830, but it didn't stop then. Romanticism is a set of intellectual and attitudinal positions spread more widely subsequently, so that some of the greatest expressions of Romantic art come after 1830. For example, in Germany, Wagner's music is clearly Romantic but it's, its apogee is in the mid-19th century. And to take just one literary instance, the novels of Walter Scott were written in the early 19th century, and they are very romantic in tone, 
but they became much more popular in the late 19th century. So what you see in the late 19th century is a spread to a wider public of attitudes which were confined to an intellectual elite in the early 19th century, which are romantic in tone. So there is an expectation of heroes being great figures. Thomas Carlyle, the greatest English language prose writer, wrote an essay on heroes and heroism. The heroic is a very major theme in, in the romantic, in romantic discourse, and that's entered into evangelicalism. There's also a sense in which the, the past should be valued much more highly about romantics. That's evident in Sir Walter Scott's novels. He set them habitually in the past, um, Ivanhoe, for example, in the Middle Ages. So that increasingly evangelicals in the late 19th century live in a world which is conditioned by romantic attitudes, and those romantic attitudes lead them to think that it's likely that heroes are important, and they, their greatest hero is Jesus Christ, and they tend therefore to think in terms of a dramatic end to the future when Jesus Christ will come, and premillennialism is associated with that expectation of the heroic breaking in of Jesus into the history of humanity at the second coming. And also, there is a sense in which the looking to the past conditions evangelicals in the late 19th century, and they tend to think that things are not getting better as their post-millennial contemporaries supposed, but are getting worse, the church is losing its fervor, the church is going into decay, and therefore only the second coming will actually put things back on course. So it's the late 19th century when there is a very widespread growth in the movement called premillennialism, and increasingly especially dispensationalism, which clearly led on to a very great deal of what happened in 20th century evangelicalism when these beliefs spread even more widely, not least through the Schofield Bible. So, Romanticism began as an intellectual movement in response to the Enlightenment. It's less a wholesale rejection than simply a course correction, or think about it as a pendulum shift. After all, when does technology and industry really take off? You might think it's the 20th century, but it's not. It was actually in the 19th century. Perhaps a better way to think of it is simply as a recognition of a deficiency in the previous era of thinking. More importantly for us today, it, it is to see that A, things that happened before will always have an effect on us, and B, things are an instant. It takes time for these ideas to trickle down. And this is important for us, because if we need to understand why we live in the world that we do, we need to understand how it was formed. I mean, did you notice how the popular influence of the Romantics didn't happen for decades? We see this today. Think about postmodernism for a moment. It became a big deal in broader culture in the late 80s and early 90s. And most of the major figures were actually high-level academics who started teaching in universities in Europe in the 1960s. They were responding to what came before them, and it took time for their ideas to trickle down into the popular culture. And usually when their ideas did hit, it didn't entirely look like it had when they created it in the university setting. To bring it a little bit more closer to home, you hear a lot about CRT these days, right? It was a legal theory that came into being largely in the 1970s as people were trying to deal with very real problems. This was their way of explaining it. But today, here we are, 40 some years later and people are talking about it. It's crazy. So what difference does this make for you? 
Well, there are three things I want you to see. First up, I want you to see that culture is always influencing the way that you see the world. This is important when we're understanding the mission of God, because we have to understand how our culture is affecting how we see those around us. Culture does color what we see and what we value. Secondly, I want you to see that the causes of the way you think are not always immediate or easily identifiable. You may not even realize how much your culture has shaped you until you're able to see your culture through the lens of someone outside of your culture, and that means time or distance. For example, travel to a foreign country and you will start to see some of the stuff in their culture that would challenge stuff in your own. And this is also why, by the way, we need to examine history because it helps us to step outside of our own time by looking at the world through the lens of someone else. Thirdly, the third thing I want you to take away from this is that evangelicalism has always been a movement that is at least partially in tune with its times. Now, this is a necessary thing, but it can also be an extremely dangerous thing. It's necessary because we always need to find ways to connect the gospel to where people are at now. That means understanding what they believe and how they believe, how their culture thoughts were formed. And that's a good thing. We need to find that connection point. But it can also be dangerous because in our desire to reach and communicate people, we could actually compromise the integrity of the gospel in the process. This is why we need guys like David Bebbington. He helps us to step out of our time and see the pitfalls that we couldn't otherwise see from our own cultural vantage point. So by looking at our time from the standpoint of another, we can see where we fall short. So culture through the Enlightenment and through Romanticism, which comes behind it and gradually attracts more and more people to its assumptions, are both at work deeply shaping evangelical religion. And that's partly what that book you just waved around. I, of course, have the British version here. This tries to analyze what happened to the evangelical movement, in part in relation to those cultural movements. So both of those figures come along and they actually shape then Christianity or evangelical Christianity in the States and in Great Britain moving forward. So what were the big shifts that they put an emphasis on that carry on even today? Spurgeon, in a sense, was defeated. Spurgeon was the champion of a traditional Puritan form of Calvinistic theology, and that was going out of popularity in the late 19th century. He also was very troubled by the rise of various broadening theological influences stemming largely from the Romantic movement. Romanticism tended to make people have less eagerness to define doctrine and more willingness to accept mistiness where doctrine previously had been. A lot of the more liberal theologians in the evangelical world, still within the evangelical world, but liberalizing in the late 19th century, were much less inclined to be definite about doctrines, most obviously the atonement, but also other doctrines too, where they were vaguer than their predecessors had been. Spurgeon was alarmed. He therefore encouraged one of his lieutenants to write articles in the late 1880s, speaking of a downgrade that was affecting the churches. The downgrade controversy was a result within the Baptist Union. Spurgeon tried to carry other Baptists with him, but he didn't. He therefore resigned from the Baptist Union. It was a great shock to his contemporaries. 
and that affected a broader evangelical world too, including in North America. But the split was most obviously felt within Baptist circles in Britain. Very few people left the Baptist Union with him. In a sense, therefore, he was defeated the downgrade controversy. But that was the first shot across the bows in England, and there'd be already been one in Scotland, against these liberalizing theological trends of which he, I think, discerned the consequences being even more drastic negation of traditional Christian theology, theological positions. And that shot across the bows was, in a sense, one of the opening rounds in what became the fundamentalist controversies of the 1920s. They were not confined to America. They affected Britain too. They affected the whole Anglo world. Much more strident in the States than in Britain. But nevertheless, they did affect the world, the, the world of the evangelicals in 20th century in Britain too. And that made for a split between conservative evangelicals and liberal evangelicals. Spurgeon was, as it were, anticipating that polarization in the 20th century. Moving to Moody, Moody actually provided a theological scheme which was more acceptable than Calvinism as such to the late 19th century mind. It was a sort of generic evangelicalism, focusing very definitely on the atonement. Uh, one of his greatest sermons was on the blood, which he preached on many occasions. And he made that the fulcrum of his system, but also insisted on all sorts of other aspects of the traditional evangelical body of faith, but without any distinctive angularities. And what Moody taught was the normative form of evangelical theology in the States and in Britain during the 20th century. Some people added extra positions. Some Methodist evangelicals said, oh, we're Arminians. And some Reformed evangelicals said, oh, we're Calvinists. But nevertheless, they shared very largely in the standard position that Moody set out. And just like Spurgeon's sermons, Moody's sermons were read again and again and again in the 20th century. In, in particular, when a particular church found that there was no preacher coming that Sunday because the preacher had forgotten to come, they'd have one of their deacons, one of their leaders, read a sermon by Spurgeon or Moody. So, deeply influential figures in those terms, I think. said that there was this shift between the separation where you saw the fundamentalists and the liberals start to split apart in in the United States specifically in North America we see it at Andover Newton Yale Harvard this theology that is permeating and then you see a response a counter response where those conservatives pull out of those liberal institutions and form their own pulling out of Princeton to form Westminster and then other schools like Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College, NIAC, all of those schools that have been formulating. And you see, though, that controversy even continues on in some form into the mid-20th century. But we've always had this idea of liberalism 
retooling and, and becoming. There's always that split apart between conservatives and the liberal aspect of things. You see that even to today with this idea of what some have called progressive Christianity. How is progressive Christianity related or connected to the liberal Christianity that was making its way into the late 19th century and now is showing up into the 21st century? Are there connection points? Yes, I'm sure there are. I don't think one should see contemporary progressive Christianity as a single entity. I think there are lots of positions. Some people within a progressive pattern are much more orthodox and others are much less orthodox. By orthodox, I would uh, apply criteria from the early church as well as criteria from traditional evangelical teaching. However, when that's been said, there are some features of the theology of the late 19th century that was incoming and liberal in tendency, and some of the features of contemporary thinking in progressive evangelical circles that are liberal in tendency too. One that I would single out, I think, is the notion of God as Father, and Father alone. Now, clearly, the Scriptures do teach us that God is our Father. But there's a great deal in the Bible which speaks of God in very different terms. And one of them would be as king, one of them would be as judge, many of them would be relate to his rulership, his government, and rather more austere and less automatically kindly qualities than are summed up by God as Father. And I think some progressive Christians of our day follow the tendencies of the late 19th century in seeing God as Father alone. That was one of the concerns that followers of Spurgeon had in the late 19th century. It was also a central concern that Andover, you mentioned Andover in particular in the States, there was a shift from the traditional New England theology, which went all the way back to Jonathan Edwards uh, in the 1860s, 1870s at Andover, when people repudiated that tradition, which had reigned there at a time when Andover was the largest congregational seminary in the United States. And it was replaced by an emphasis on God as Father. Now, if you take God as Father alone, there are all, all sorts of domino effects. If God is Father alone, then what do you make of the atonement? Surely, surely a father would not make his son suffer. Surely, therefore, the atonement in its traditional form can't be accepted because we can't say that God imposes a burden of sins of the world on his son. Now, that just doesn't seem to make sense. And there was a strong tendency in that direction. If God is, however, a God of justice as well as love, then he can be expected to want to pursue redemption, and that must be by extreme methods, and the extreme methods may involve the giving up his, of his son to death, and the son whose will is in harmony with that of the father may be willing to suffer death. So if God is not just father but other things too, then the atonement in a more traditional form, a more redeeming form, one may think, can, can be validated. I do believe that quite a lot of the tendencies in contemporary progressive 
Christianity are associated with saying, God is nothing but Father. He's always loved us. He will continue to love us. Therefore, one can wink at sin. Therefore, one doesn't need an atonement. And therefore, key elements in the traditional evangelical understanding of the scriptures are denuded of some of their value. Now, when that's been said, I think that there needs to be a very important caveat about seeing continuity between 19th century liberalism and 21st century progressivism. There are other major cultural influences in play now. Not just the legacy of the Enlightenment, which is still with us in large measure, not just the legacy of the Romantic movement, which is still in play, but also in the late 20th century, there's been the impact on society at large, Christianity in particular, and evangelicals most particularly, of a movement which has all sorts of labels, sometimes called modernism, springing from the early 20th century. But that's not theological modernism. That is cultural modernism. It's the assumptions of the avant-garde artists at the start of the 20th century that one should express oneself culturally so that, for example, non-representational art in the manner of Picasso enters into the cultural mainstream at the start of the 20th century. Now, that sort of expressivism, which is the way I prefer to call it now, uh, because people were thought to need to express themselves culturally, became more and more widespread as the 20th century went on. I think in the late 20th century, the need to express oneself impinged in a big way on the evangelical movement. One of its most obvious ways of expressing itself is through the charismatic renewal movement from the 1960s, which did say, yes, you must express yourself. That's why hands began to be raised in worship. That's why people started saying, I can dispense with the traditions of the elders in the evangelical movement. For example, I don't have to restrict myself by being an adherent to the temperance movement. I can drink alcohol. There's nothing in the Bible which condemns it. Jesus did. So there are all sorts of shifts from the 60s onwards, that crucial decade in the history of religion in the Western world, whereby these new cultural influences associated with expressivism came into force. And I would see myself post-modernism as an intellectual construct, which is an expression of expressivism. I would see that as the intellectual content of associated with the whole expressivist trend in culture. Now, if that's true, one should expect certain aspects of expressivism to have had an impact on progressive Christianity in the recent past. And I think that's true. So that, for example, a willingness to let people express themselves in terms of their gender identity according to their preference is a natural corollary of that view which I've labelled by that word expressivism. And I think progressive Christians in our day tend to be associated with the movement in favour of letting people express their gender identity exactly as they wish. And that, of course, is a major dividing force within Christianity in our day. Uh, in the States, it is actually dividing Methodism as we speak. The Methodist Church is undergoing schism 
uh, so that the United Methodist Church will lose half its congregations in Texas within a 12-month period. And there are similar developments, especially within the Church of England in, in, the, 20th, in the 21st century. That tendency is not limited to non-evangelicals. It affects evangelicals too. So I would see, yes, continuity with the late 19th century and progressive tendencies, but also innovations. And I would largely associate these with a fresh cultural wave. The, the past that's been inhabited by evangelicals can best be understood, it seems to me, in terms of successive waves of enlightenment, romanticism, and expressivism. When you put them together and see how they mingle and interweave and are still influential in the present, you have a key to understanding how evangelicalism has changed over time. known in many circles for creating what is known as your your quadrilateral the bevington quadrilateral something that i heard about in school and i know that many in our audience may or may not be familiar probably not familiar unless you're an academic what is the bevington quadrilateral and why is it important for us understanding evangelicalism today once when I was at Baylor University, where I've quite often visited, I was there last semester. They very kindly arranged a special dinner to mark my 60th birthday. And I was ever so grateful. And somebody kindly made a speech, and then I had to respond. And the question of the evangelical quadrilateral had been raised by the speaker. So I had to comment on that. So I had to think of the four characteristics that I have said evangelicalism stresses, hence the quadrilateral four stresses. And unfortunately, when I'd gone through three, I forgot the fourth. So (laughs) there is a risk of that happening again. However, what the evangelical quadrilateral is, is a comment on how evangelicals have expressed their faith from the 1730s when the movement first began right up to the present day. And my insistence on the basis of evidence from America, Britain, and indeed throughout the rest of the world, is that evangelicalism has rested on emphasizing four characteristics. One is the Bible. The Bible is the authority for religion, but it's also the support of evangelical spiritual lives. A second is the cross. The atonement is what redeems us from slavery to sin, and the blood of the Lamb is what actually saves us. A third is conversion, that people are not automatically Christians, that they have to be converted to become true Christians. And the fourth is activism, that you actually express your faith in doing lots of things, spreading the gospel, certainly, and also, at most stages of evangelical history, but not always, engaging in active social concern. Now, I'd want to stress that evangelicals have been people who have emphasized those four. Other types of Protestant Christians in particular have upheld those positions, but they haven't always emphasized those points more than other points. 
within the Church of England in the 19th century. Other Christians, whether high churchmen or broad, broad churchmen, emphasized not the atonement, but the incarnation. And that was a trend associated with the Romantic movement I've already spoken of. But that tended to take the Christian movement in Britain and elsewhere away from the evangelical priorities. But I'd want to stress, therefore, that evangelicals are people who have emphasized those four, not just held them, emphasized them. I'd also want to say that this is not really a definition. Definitions are what theologians do, and I'm not a theologian. I would call it a characterization. It is actually a description of how evangelicals have in practice been at many places at many times. Indeed, I would say in all places and in all times there have been evangelicals, and they've shown these common characteristics. They've shown an enormous number of other variations, and I'm fascinated by the variations, which are not least affected by the sort of cultural currents I've spoken of already. But those four elements say, here's an evangelical, here be evangelicals. But that is, as it were, a phenomenology of evangelicalism. It's saying that that's what the phenomenon has consisted of over time. And I did actually produce a couple of books a couple of years ago called The Evangelical Quadrilateral, which backs up that contention by having essays on various aspects of the movement. I'm afraid in Britain, uh, there are mentions of America, but most of the chapters are about Britain rather than America. And they point out the evidence for that characterization being valid. So I do still adhere to that notion, which has become very popular um, because other people have noticed that it reflects the evidence. If it didn't reflect the evidence, I wouldn't hold it. I'm not claiming to be the inventor of evangelicalism. I'm claiming to be the <laughs> discoverer of a phenomenon that has existed over time and over space. You mentioned that evangelicalism from the 1730s, when you talk about its origin, I don't think many in our audience have even thought about that. They don't think about how far their history goes back and where it originated from. Where do you see evangelicalism originating from? Okay, I do see evangelicalism as being a distinct phenomenon developing from the 1730s onwards, associated with what in America is normally called the Great Awakening, in Britain, the Evangelical Revival. Now, it happened in denominations which were deeply indebted to earlier Christian history, of course, and in most denominations that already existed, the Anglicans, the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the, the, their traditions stem from the Reformation. But there is, as it were, a distinct change of gear in the mid-18th century. From the Reformation of the 16th century onwards, those various denominations had insisted on Reformation being the priority for Christian believers, that they must reform their church order, reform their pattern of worship, so they reflected what the Scriptures command. Getting churches right was their priority. From the mid-18th century onwards, beginning of the 1730s, but developing the 40s, 50s onwards, Christians who identified with the Great Awakening 
began to say, okay, we carry on with our Reformation emphases on church order, but we also seek revival. We want to revitalize our churches by having deep personal experience of God and spreading that deep personal experience to other people too by spreading the gospel. So the impetus to spread the gospel became much more prominent. It's no accident that in the Anglo world, the missionary movement to other parts of the world is the fruit of that evangelical revival stroke Great Awakening. The first traditional denominations, major missionary societies founded in 1792 by William Carey, the Baptist Missionary Society. And that represents the impulse to spread the gospel, the activism I've been spoken of. Uh, that, that activism is now becomes an international phenomenon, taking the gospel not just to the those in the countries where it, the gospel was already known, but to fresh countries, in order to have revival spread elsewhere. So whereas the Reformation had been the paradigm within which Christians operated up to the mid-18th century, evangelicals subsequently adopted revival as their chief paradigm, constantly seeking it and promoting it, not only at home, but also abroad. Therefore, there's a very distinct change of gear. Now, some historians have criticised that. Indeed, there's a whole book that was published in 19, uh, 2009, I think, having contributions by quite, quite a lot of uh, historians and theologians say, well, no, we don't think that it only began in the mid-18th century. The evangelical movement goes right back to the Reformation. And some people who see reformed continuities from the Reformation onwards can have quite a strong case for seeing continuities right through the 18th century and onwards. And I would share the view that there is a great deal of continuity. However, other contributors to the volume said, and these are the ones I really agree with, yes, although there's that continuity, there is also a great deal of discontinuity and there is novelty in the, the quest for revival in the, in the 18th century. And I think that the clinching argument which shows that that is valid is that it's not just that the traditional denominations are revitalized by the evangelical movement then, but also a whole new denomination is created, and that's Methodism. Methodism, the Methodism of John Wesley, only begins in the 1730s, or to be precise, at quarter to nine in the evening on the 24th of May in 1738, the juncture of John Wesley's conversion. From then on, Methodism springs up, becomes a huge movement, by far the biggest Protestant denomination in America in the 19th century. And that movement is a novelty which expresses this evangelical spirit through and through. So I would see the 18th century as being the time when evangelicalism is, as a fresh movement, is created. Would you redefine the quadrilateral in response to some of the developments today? That actually is one of the questions from one of our listeners. They said, would you redefine your quadrilateral in what you see happening in our contemporary society today? In a word, no. The reason to say no is that just because there are developments at a particular juncture in time, it 
can't negate the evidence of the previous 250 years. That is to say, the evidence piles up over time, and one can look at any year between 1738 and 2022 and see these characteristics, certainly in the Anglo world, but also elsewhere as the evangelical movement has spread through foreign missions and in other ways. And one can see that those characteristics are there. When that's been said, in 2023, there are novelties around us. Let, let me mention one of them that I know you're interested in, the revival at Asprey University in 2023. Now, that is a, a, a revival, but that doesn't show fresh characteristics to my eyes. I've seen one or two things on the internet which show what's been going on there, and it reminds me extremely strongly of what happened in the Welsh revival in 1905. What happens at Asprey is the not a, a response through the stimulus of preaching, but I see developments through the local participants who tend to be students playing music and giving testimonies. And those are absolutely characteristic of the Welsh revival at the start of the 20th century. So there are the, even in what is very novel, apparently, in 2023, there is a great deal of similarity with what's gone before. Now, can one argue that one should alter the quadrilateral because of trends that have happened, not just in 2023, but in the more recent past? I take up that issue in those two books that I mentioned earlier, The Evangelical Quadrilateral, published in 2021. And those books not only have articles that I've published over the years reprinted there, but there are also introductions in which I survey the ground of how the study of evangelicalism has developed in the last 50 years or so. And I try to suggest that on the basis of the evidence, that characterization in the evangelical quadrilateral does not need to be altered, because it still does represent reality that other historians have seen in the past. I hope you're starting to see why we explore the Christian past. Seeing where we came from is so important because Christianity, even evangelical Christianity, is not a recent thing and it hasn't always looked the way that it does now. But to be sure, and to be fair, we've just scratched the surface of things. I love how Bebington shows our own history by looking at these two great men, Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Dwight Lyman Moody one British and the other American, and how they saw things, but also the cultural forces of their day. Those cultural forces led to some of the differences between the U.S. and the U.K. evangelicals. The importance of understanding the influence of the Enlightenment and the Romantic periods and how they shape the ways we tend to think even today. These cultural forces always played a part in understanding the ways that evangelicalism understood itself and interacted with culture. That means, at the least, we should understand and engage with expressivism of the moment. Carl Truman, whom we've had on, and others call it expressive individualism. And as Bevington said, postmodernity is the intellectual content of the way of seeing the world. We have to understand the times, to actively pursue Christ's mission in it, 
That doesn't mean we accept everything that the world throws at us. Far from it. But we do have to engage it constructively. And I know that this is a real heady thing, but it's something that we all deal with each and every day. We just may not have the language for it. Part of what we do here is to help you. We want to be able to give you the language to describe things that you're dealing with. Because we have to understand why our culture thinks the way that it does. Learning from the past helps us to frame the moment we are in. In part, it helps us to see the way that we think may not be the way the culture around us thinks any longer. We are fairly convinced that while shifts in the prevailing cultural forces have happened before, there is a more profound shift going on right now than anything evangelicals have ever seen. It's going to take all of us working together to address it. Next time, we're going to pick up right where we left off. Our conversation ranges from Native American reservations in Oklahoma to the global evangelical movement. We will discuss some of the unique issues and differences faced by evangelicals in the U.S. and the U.K. today, as well as some of the threats that we all face. I wanted to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. 